Apollo 11 was the first uh, landing of the of men on the moon by the United States, well, by anybody, but by the United States. And the most striking unknown facing Apollo 11 was what exactly was the moon's surface made of? Though a few, though very few lunar lunar probes had managed to touch down and return pictures and chemical compounds, composite details, it was still unclear whether the surface would support the weight of a grown man, much less two grown men, and their spaceship. Was the moon covered in immensely deep and light stratum of dust that would swallow up the craft and the passengers whole? Were its mountains as fragile as spun sugar upon which rocket landings would trigger landslides and devastation? While most NASA scientists did not describe to the worst-case scenarios, it was striking to know that, really, they didn't know what was there. They didn't know what the surface was like. Why did we know so little about the moon before sending two men to land on it? Well, it was due to the terrible history of American lunar probes. And I'm about to right now give you a very quick history of lunar probes. I know you're excited. First, 
Ranger 3 in August of 1961 was sent to the moon and it missed the moon by 20,000 miles. An initial absolute failure. In November 1961, uh, in November of 1961, Ranger 4 lands on the moon, but electrical failure ends the mission before any data can be returned. Look at that thing. That was pretty expensive. It crashed on the far side of the moon without sending back any data. Ranger 5 missed the moon by 420 miles. Closer than Ranger Ranger 3. Was it Ranger 3? Ranger 3 missed by 20,000 miles. Ranger 5 missed by 420,000 miles. Don't get me wrong. I'm not making fun of NASA scientists because doing something like this is incredibly difficult. Ranger 6 is supposed to take pictures of the moon. Uh, Ranger 6 has six cameras on it, six TV cameras that are all separately wired just in case if one of them fails, the rest won't fail. They all failed. They got zero pictures from Ranger 6. Ranger 7 is the exact same model as Ranger 6, except Ranger 7 finally does it. Ranger 7 crashes into the sea of clouds and broadcasts pictures on its way down in July of 1964. And there is the first picture that they receive of the moon's surface. So you can imagine after six rockets being sent up there with nothing but failure, they finally get 4,300 photos. So what do we see here? A little bit of success uh, and great excitement. And so uh, as I wanted to show you this, so we can see this right on the slide, I hope is. There we go. So here's Ranger 7 uh, headed towards the moon, and it's going to crash in that crater that's called, um, I've lost my place here, the Sea of Clouds. And by the way, it was supposed to crash. So it was sent there to crash, but to take those pictures as it landed. So that's a success. All right. Uh, Let's see. On May 30th, 1966, we have uh, Surveyor 1. It lands successfully and produces a panorama landscape of a, a flat plain littered with craters and rocks. And by the way, the probe is still there. And uh, there's pictures of it online from other orbiters that are that have gone around the moon. There's like arrows. They're like, there's that lander. That little guy is still there. Uh, <clears throat> so that's Surveyor 1. That was a success. Uh, and then on August 10th, 1966, then we had Lunar 1 uh, was sent, and it got blurry pictures. So it got some pictures, but some of them were blurry thanks to a com- compensator sensor anomaly, uh, an- anomaly, not an anomaly, an anomaly. That's why I was rejected from NASA. I did apply to be an astronaut, and I was rejected. Actually, one of the neat things about this probe is that it was the first to send back a picture of the Earth from uh, lunar orbit. All right, but still, blurry pictures that were unusable uh, and therefore uh, unable to be used. So anyway, November 18, 1966, we have Orbiter 2 
Orbiter 2 is another success. It relays back pictures of potential landing sites. And then comes Surveyor 2. Surveyor 2's uh, navigation system fails and the satellite vanished. And on September 22, 1966, this probe was sent to the moon and then something went wrong and it disappeared. The computer failed. It's still floating out there in space somewhere. They have no idea where it is right now. Uh, August 20th, 1967 is Surveyor 3. Surveyor 3 lands in the ocean of storms. It's not an actual ocean. It's a crater on the moon that has that name, but it shuts down after a single night. So it was there. It took pictures. There's one of its pictures there at the bottom. And then nights on the moon are pretty cold. And, uh, and so when it, when, uh, it, got, it got cold, it, it failed. Uh, what's neat here is this is the only spaceship that has been photographed by an astronaut who two years later they landed near where this probe landed and the astronauts walked over to it and they took a picture of it and they also took stuff off of it to bring back. They brought back some samples and they tore off one of the cameras and brought it back, probably as a souvenir. Uh, so that's a failure. Surveyor 4... Uh, Surveyor 4, the radio fails, and it crashed. So Surveyor 4 got nothing. And then two years, just two years before Apollo 11 was sent with people on it to land on the moon, Surveyor 5 touches down on the Sea of Tranquility and radios back the soil composition. Soil com uh, the soil composition was found to be made of calcium, aluminum, magnesium, silicon, and oxygen, which in the ratios they were meant basalt, originating from lava flow, but it wasn't of the same composition as Earth's and so on. So, And somebody, some real, really smart geologist had analyzed this data and published what was exactly on the moon, but it was published after the uh, astronauts went and came back. So when the astronauts went, they had no idea what, what they were going to land. Some idea, but not enough to be uh, absolutely confident. So... If NASA had so much trouble getting a simple probe to touch down in the moon, how in the world were they going to get two men to land on the moon and then bring them home? So what do we see in this? What do we see in all of these super expensive machines that fail? Failure, 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 success, failure, well, no, that's a success. Surveyor 2, there's two other failures between this. This guy's a failure with the blurry pictures. This guy shut down after one day, so he sent back pictures, but uh, kind of like a partial failure. And then we land men on the moon in 1969, and we did it and brought them home safe. Today we're going to look at endurance. That's what this. That's why I chose this uh, endurance of faith to do things that are of real importance, uh, and and, uh, and this is it was of real importance to do things of real importance. You're going to find that you fail over and over, especially at the start. If you give up after you failed, you obviously won't succeed. Everybody fails. Every Christian fails at this. Every Christian who truly wants to be like Christ is like landing a man on the moon. 
It's actually harder. And we've got to keep at it. If we miss by 20,000 miles, we miss the mark. It's really a definition of sin is to miss the mark. If we, failed and over and over, if we failed over and over and we're still alive, God is still your mission commander and God will patiently wait and increase your faith. God will give strength. He will patiently lead you. And as we repent over and over from our failures, from our stupidities, from our lusts and sins or whatever got in the way of us actually applying faith, God will be waiting right there with forgiveness and encouragement, just like we saw yesterday with Moses. If you've had success, that's another thing I love about this story, is that they had great success and then they sent up their next one, you would think it would be greater, right? Every time they send up a probe, it's going to be better, but actually that's not the case. Something else goes wrong, something that they didn't plan on, something that they didn't expect or anticipate. You, if you've had success in the spiritual life and you thought it was smooth sailing from there, but then you failed miserably, don't quit. Keep at it. That's what endurance is. And that's what Jesus is going to show us today. That, in, that increased faith comes from endurance. Um, and endurance is just sticking with it. Endurance is being patient while we obey the Lord and know that over time, and it will take some time, that our faith will increase. We see it all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament saints. Moses is 40 years in the wilderness. David is 10 years in the wilderness. Paul is multiple, three missionary journeys and then ends up in in a fourth missionary journey, which it was, but he ends up in jail in Rome. And yet his ministry and himself strengthened. And uh, all by doing what? Not quitting, sticking with God. Our faith will increase. All right, let's go to, we're actually going to start in James chapter 1. And let's pray. Let's uh, thank God for his instruction and his word and the many examples that we have of perseverance and endurance by which we can Uh, continue on. Let's pray for God's understanding or understanding from God and for uh, clarity. So with that, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for our Lord and Savior who showed us the ultimate in endurance. And yet he bids us and he teaches us to continue to follow him. In so many ways he has said it to lose our lives that we may find it, to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves daily, to press on, to reach for the upward call, to be diligent, to never quit. We don't always get it right, Father. We fail. We are sinners. And yet you are always with us. As your children who have believed in your Son, you are always there, always ready to receive us into your truth, when we realize our error and you correct and instruct us and help us see. And when we see, we hit the mark. And when we hit that mark again and again, our faith increases. We thank you, Father, for your grace and your magnificent plan. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
So today's theme is faith increases in the long life of servants, or sorry, it is a long life. It might not be a long life. Uh, Faith increases in the lifelong servants of Christ who faithfully serve him. I put in, purposely put in there lifelong because it's an endurance game. Um, And this is what Christ is going to point out to us. Uh, There's no quick fix. There's no get faith quick scheme. Uh, There's those who plug with it. And when they fail, they pick themselves back up and they get back with it. They learn and they strive to apply. Um, there's there's nothing to it that is of um, uh, other than that. You know, there, there's nothing more than that. I mean, obviously, there's more doctrines and stuff, but when it comes to maturing, it takes time and it takes diligence in learning and in trusting and in obeying. And as we do that, we will grow. Our faith will grow. If we, if we spend our Christian lives constantly in rebellion, meaning that when God reveals areas of sin that he makes clear to us have to stop, and we don't stop them, and, and we continue to do what we've always done, and we don't change, our faith is not going to increase. So, right. So when you grow in grace and knowledge, you grow and growth means change. You should change. I should change. You know how I think and see things. It should change. And for some of us, we you know, it, I don't want to change. I think it's probably true of all of us. So we get in a comfortable spot and we don't want to change. And when God presses upon us to continue to keep going. And if we say to him, no, we've gone far enough then our faith will not increase. It makes sense. And God is going to bid us to continue to go on. And there's the first way he's going to do that is to test us. So as we see in James 1, we mentioned this really quickly yesterday, that uh, a quote from a commentary by Wearsby uh, where he writes, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. And that's obviously true. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a clear and, uh, uh, statement that should be um, uh, understood by everybody that um, <clears throat> faith that cannot be tested is not faith at all. If I say I believe something and then when pressure comes upon me and then I say, well, you know, I'm not going to act in that belief, then what is my belief? My belief is not strong. So trials are God's way of increasing our faith. And what we mean by increasing is more often. uh, That means that in many situations where I would get, say, you know, a failure of faith is like worry, anxiety, anger, uh, or or rushing into sins that are of the body, like lust, uh, uh, physical pleasures that are outside God's will. And I rush into those uh, addictions and so on that um, that's not of faith, that's me going my own way. And faith is a way. Right? So faith is the assurance of things not seen. What is not seen is God's way. It's not tangible. God's way, its results are tangible, and the results of God's way can be seen. But the way itself is invisible. It's a, 
it's a, a road in which God has bid us to walk upon, a path that is filled with ethics and virtue and morality and obedience. And, and so trials God brings into our lives to test our faith. So look at John, uh, James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Uh, this word complete is a word that we've seen in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It is you know, the completeness of us it means that God is going so perfect would refer to the, uh, the, that God is going to mature us. And so we have maturity and completeness. And you see, and, and this wonderful phrase that we lack nothing. And the reason why we lack nothing is because we have all of our value is in God. So value, again, is the word worthy. You know, who is worthy here? And, and God is worthy. And when, when God puts us through various trials, our idea of his, the worthiness of his way, the worthiness of him, is put to the test. And then I find out if I really believe it or not, or how strongly I believe it. How much pressure does it take for me to change from following God to following something else? which is generally me. So still, though, we understand that trials alone are not going to increase our faith because every Christian experiences trials and not every Christian increases faith. What if we keep failing the trials? What if the trials come upon us and every time they come, we freak out? Now, I, what if every time pressure comes upon you or every time, let's say, let's say even almost every time, almost every time that pressure comes upon you, things don't work out the way that you wanted them to, uh, schedule was changed, the idea of things were changed, whatever, uh, the pressure of temptation for sin came upon you, and what if at every Every turn or almost every turn you complain, your anger flies out of control, you uh, seek sinful ways to cope with your pain, and you just do that again and again. What happens is that the trial has come upon you, and you failed it, and you keep failing it. And so <clears throat> are you going to grow in in, as a result of failing trial? And the answer is no. Actually, you're going to get weaker. Now, failing trial has a lesson in it. It will show me my weakness. But you know, if I'm never able to surpass these trials, which I do by trusting, and what, by the way I pass trials is I put my trust in the way of God, and I do that way. Uh, the thinking of God, and I think that way. And I say, you know, no matter what, my thinking is with him then I'm going to pass those trials. And, but in James's case, the, the, to the ones that um, he's writing to, here's what they did. Skip down to chapter 4. Look at verse 1. <clears throat> what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members, the meaning the members of your body? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. 
You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose Quote, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And that, I should clarify that, that's because their laughter and their joy was based on a sinful lifestyle. So Paul is saying you should be weeping rather than enjoying what you have been doing. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So Far from applying faith to their situation, but they are facing a situation that all of us face. Who of us don't face conflict between people? Or people in our lives raise up conflict in our souls. We have the opportunity to respond in faith with love and say, I'm going to do this God's way. Or I can, what did they do? Fight and quarrel. Uh, Who of us don't have flesh-desiring pleasures tempting us? And we can, by faith, say no. Or we can do what they did. They gave in. They did not have because they wanted to, whatever they got, to spend it on their pleasure. So God said to them, you don't have blessing from me. And who of us are not tempted to pride? God makes war with the proud. But who of us are not tempted to be proud? And we are. And, you know, so we can respond to that prideful temptation with the truth faith in the truth, saying, you know, I would love to get revenge here or I would love to feed myself right now whatever it is I want. I would really love to think of myself, but I can't. And you know why I can't? Is because I belong to the Lord. I'm His. And you see, when you say that and you put your faith in that, you have God the Holy Spirit within you that's going to give you the power to follow through on that. In essence, it's really not you that does it, but it is you that makes the choice to head that way. So we can apply faith to our situations or not. Trials don't mean increased faith, but trials are necessary for increased faith. So James tells us, we saw here, that humility is needed. Look at verse 10 again. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And he will exalt you. What does it mean to be exalted by God? Well, that's really getting back to the first part that we read. Mature, complete, lacking nothing. Exalted doesn't mean I'm rich and I have the world's goods. Exalted means that I have the Lord's goods. And that I wield them expertly, skillfully. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. And so I, yeah, you know, but when God exalts me, I have the strength of Christ. But I've got to be humble, and that's a key. Remember Moses' situation that we looked at yesterday. 
things looked hard. Go, Moses, and tell Pharaoh to let the people go. Moses is like, you got the wrong man for the job here. I, I don't think I can do that. But God gives Moses Aaron, and he gives Moses some miracles to work. And Moses says, you know what? I think I can do this. So he does, and he goes down there. And then he proclaims himself to the Israelites. They see the signs that Moses can do. And uh, they're like, yeah, you know, we're on your side. Awesome. Then he goes to Pharaoh. And he's, you know, when you read it in Exodus, he's pretty confident. But then Pharaoh looks him square in the eye and says, no, I'm not letting your people go. And actually, since you want to go, I'm going to make it harder. I'm going to make it a lot harder for them to work. I'm not going to give them straw. They're going to have to make the same amount of bricks without the straw. They're going to have to find straw on their own. And the people came to Moses and said, why have you done this? Uh, it looked to them that Moses' great idea to go and demand Pharaoh let them go and show his signs to Pharaoh meant nothing. You know, and actually uh, uh, caused them to be abused. So what did Moses say to God? You haven't done anything at all, is what Moses said to God. So what did we see in Moses' faith? It was put under trial, then God helped him, and his faith got stronger. Then he went to Pharaoh, and the whole thing fell apart, and his faith disappeared. But herein lies the key. Moses said this to God, you have not done what you said. And therein lies the key to endurance of faith, which is, God said. That's it. When God says he's going to do something, is he going to do it? Will, do, will God do what he said? And we as believers say, well, of course he will. Do you believe that? And we as believers say, well, of course I do. But do you believe it enough that when you are able, when you are under such incredible trial, that you're able to soldier through with perfect peace? That's when you find out if you believe what God said. And, you know, when we ask that question, all of us go, ah, you know, sometimes, sometimes not. And that's every one of us. Every one of us. So how do we, so what do we all, we were all say like the disciples said to the Lord, please increase our faith. Faith is seeing the biblical truths as reality. And you know, when you see things as real, real is stubborn. It's a very good saying that when people try to prove something that's wrong, if you have evidence that are facts, you can say facts are stubborn things. They are. I love that phrase. Facts are stubborn, stubborn things. Reality is without question Right? It's today, Wednesday. Right? It's reality. It's without question. Is it daytime? It's without question. When biblical truths are seen as reality, they're seen as without question. As with Moses, we're going to go through many times when the evidence of what we see does not look like what God promises will happen. But God said. It didn't look like to Moses that this was going real well. 
But as you continue to read through, because as you know, in Egypt there's ten plagues and Moses keeps going back to Pharaoh and keeps going back to Pharaoh. By the time you get to the, like, the end of the plagues, plagues eight and nine, uh, and it's at nine that Moses speaks to Pharaoh for the last time, you can read in Moses' voice this confidence because he's seen it. Right? He's seen the plague of the frogs. He's seen the plague of the gnats and the bugs and the, uh, and the, the hail and the dead animals and the locusts. He's seen it all. And God, God says to him, I'm going to send locusts tomorrow. Moses looks around. There's locusts tomorrow. God says, I'm going to send hail tomorrow. Moses, under a roof, <laughs> says, look, look at the hail outside. He sees it. It's real. And this is what God does for us. We're not going to see miracles like that. But we are going to see miracles. Miracles happen within our hearts, within our souls. When we operate in faith and do things God's way, we're going to see the result of it. However, what happens, and this is what the Lord is going to get at, is pride comes in. And that's what Moses Moses was like, you're not doing what you said you would do. You see what that is, and it's a great definition for pride, is substituting your own opinion for God's. It's an awesome definition of pride. Because it covers everything. If my opinion says, oh, woe is me, I could never do what God wants me to do. I'm such a failure. I failed so many times, I could never do it. What if I'm the scientist on the, what was the... um, what were those first ones? The Ranger Project. I don't, what if I worked that whole project and I'm on Ranger 7? <laughs> Every one of my Rangers is either flown by the moon or crashed into it or got sent back blurry pictures. You know, I'm going to quit. Well, if they don't fire you first. But what if you don't? See, in the Christian life, you don't get fired. You're always God's child. And if you're alive, God says, get up. Let's go. And when I say, God, you've seen me. I can't do it. God says you can do it. He says of every born-again believer that you can do it. When you say you can't do it, your opinion is different than God's, and therefore you're proud. It's not humble to say you can't do it. It's absolutely prideful. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is the Christians who say, I can do everything without God because I'm so awesome. That is also your own opinion. And when we substitute our own opinion for God's opinion, we're living in pride. Go to Luke 17. So when we, when we trust in such a way that the reality of God's truth living his word, you know, that's found in his word. When we, look at the re, when we look at that as reality, 
then we're going to we're going to have the attitude of I don't know how this is going to work out in the end, but I'm going to do it God's way. And when you do that, you're going to see the fruit of what you've done. And that's when you start seeing the reality of the power of God's way, God's way of doing things. It's the same thing that Christ did, right? Christ was tempted in everything, but he always did it the Father's way. And it always worked out magnificently. Even his death on the cross worked out magnificently. Father, if it be your will, be your will. If there any other way, let this cup pass from me, right? He, he was not into going to the cross because he thought it was fun. But look at the result. So when we look at that, and we say, well, you know what? I'm going to do things God's way. And I've missed... <laughs> I love that first probe that just sails by the moon 20, by 20,000 miles. I, between here and, uh, and the moon is a long distance. So 20,000 miles to a NASA scientist is probably pretty close, you know. But uh, anyway, say I've missed the moon by a million miles. I, I keep missing it. Well, so what? Can you not do it? Because, you know, being a NASA scientist, only a few people can do that. But being a Christian who is mature and complete and lacks nothing is available to all of us. None of us are lacking what it takes to do that. We have God within, the Holy Spirit within. We have the Word of God. All of us are qualified for it. God has made us qualified. So when we follow through in faith, we see its results. And then faith increases. And it increases. And it increases. So the quality of our faith, the frequency of our faith, the ability to have faith in situations that years ago would have completely freaked you out. But yet, it's a no-brainer now. No problem. So, look at uh, Luke 17.5. We'll skip the context for now. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now, why did the Lord, why did they ask this? Well, in the context, Christ is teaching a woe upon those who place stumbling blocks in front of others. He says, woe to them. You can see it in verse 1. Woe to them who set stumbling blocks in front of others. It's better for a millstone to be hung upon their neck than to harm one of these little ones, which is referencing children, but it would be a really a reference to everybody, that those who purposely set, set stumbling blocks in front of others are going to pay the price. Um, the apostles have no problem with that. I guarantee it. You know, that's a, that's a reap what you sow principle, which is a very common principle all through Judaism. However, Christ says if they repent, forgive them. Well, the disciples are like, now that kind of world they haven't grown up in. If you're guilty, you are not forgiven. But then Christ said something even more astounding. If they repent seven times, forgive them. Seven times? Yeah, in a day. Not over your life. In a day. So, think about it. If someone, whatever the stumbling block is... Uh, someone tried to trip you up. 
and they said, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. You forgive. An hour later, they do the exact same thing. Hmm. Uh, and then they say, because they have to repent. That's what the Lord said. If they repent, forgive them. If they repent, forgive them. They come to you and say, you know what? I'm sorry. Uh, I won't do that again. They don't even have to say that. They just repent. That, that was wrong. Repent is saying, I'm wrong. That was wrong. I'm sorry. Okay. I forgive them. An hour later, they do the same thing again. All right. Now, what are those first two repentances about? Right? Did they really mean it? Uh, maybe not. Maybe so. I don't know. I can't read their minds. But obviously, this person is an absolute jerk in my life. And yet, that's time three. The Lord says, if they put a stumbling block in front of you seven times in a day, you must forgive them if they repent. All right. So, the response of the disciples to this, listed as apostles here in verse 5, is increase our faith. Right? They understand that... uh, that's going to t- that's like impossible. So the Lord said, speaking of faith. Now this is our subject uh, in Second Thessalonians. It states that Paul is thankful to the Thessalonians because their faith has greatly increased. And what we want to find out is how does our faith increase? How do we get it to increase? Because all of us need that. So they ask him. Actually, this is a command, but it's a command in a sort of prayer way. So they're not bossing the Lord around. They're saying increase our faith in a, in a very real desire. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you'd say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. So what the Lord does here is actually says that it's not like a lot of faith that you guys are lacking here by being afraid of this command to forgive seven times in a day. But it's, you know, and the mustard seed is tiny. So it's not the amount of faith that you lack. It is the quality of faith that you lack. You lack faith in this whole life, meaning me. Do they believe that Jesus is the Messiah? They most definitely do. All of them do. Do they believe he's the Son of God? They all do. But when he says, forgive those who who purposely set a stumbling block in front of you seven times in a day, they're like, wait a minute. What don't they have faith in? They They lack faith in the life that Christ is. Christ is more than just a person. A Messiah is a person, absolutely. He's gonna, a person is going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. He's a person. But the Messiah is also a way of life. You know, as John writes in his gospel, when Christ comes into the world, John writes, the life was the light of the world. The life was. Jesus is a life. He's a type of life, which is called eternal life. And that's what they don't put their faith in. Now think about it with Christians. We say we look at parts of the scripture and we say, well, yeah, that sounds good. I like that. I like that. I like that. And then they're like, whoa, wait, what is that? I ain't doing that. That is totally against. That's just stupid. <laughs> I'm going to love my enemies? What are you, crazy? 
No, I'm be like what the Jews said. You love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. Makes sense. We all do this, what they're doing. And that's why he said, it's not that you lack an amount of faith. It's that you don't accept the life for what it really is. And what does a mustard seed do? Mustard seed is designed to make a plant, or really a tree, <coughs> to make a mustard tree. And what, what the seed has in it is life. And what we're putting our faith in is the life. So, you know, there's, say, a husband says, I'm not going to love my wife like Christ loves the church. Lay my life down for her? She's a, her? Maybe if she was nicer. Maybe if she did stuff for me. And what are you saying? Well, your faith is in something else. Your your faith is in, I'm going to protect me. Or whatever it is. But see, faith puts itself right where God says this is the way. And that I'm going to do that way no matter what. That's faith. I may not even know all about the way because my faith, what I know is a tiny little mustard seed. But I know that whatever I'm commanded by my Father, I must do. I have to do it. And that's faith in a little thing. Now, as I learn more and more about what my father wants to do, wants me to do, then my faith will definitely increase. But if I start, as I learn more of the scripture, and then when I get to parts, I'm like, well, I didn't know he said that. I don't want to do that. I, I, for the you know, wives having to subject themselves to their husbands when their husbands are, you know, not good men. Um. Okay, you got a choice there. I say, I'm going to stand up for myself. That is your choice. Or you could do it God's way. Uh, <clears throat> a person who is, has a strong attraction towards uh, a sinful lifestyle, and he knows it's wrong, but he justifies it somehow. Self-justification. Faith says one way. I say, you know what, I'm going to do it another way. I'm going to do it my way. And your faith is in the wrong thing. Your faith is in some kind of self-preservation of the flesh rather than in God. So it's not the amount of faith. It's what your faith is in. And that's what he says. You don't need a lot of faith. You need to put your faith in the right thing. And in this case, he says it will move a tree. A tree, which is interesting because in, fast forward to Matthew 21, 21, Jesus said to them, this is after he shriveled up the fig tree. Uh, And truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but you'll say to this mountain, and we know exactly where they are when the Lord says this. They're right on the side of the Mount of Olives. You can go see that mountain today, or you could look online and look at it. I mean, it's, it's not the size of Mount Hood. It's not anything that big, but it's, it's a mountain. He said, you could say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, 
and you will receive. That's how he finishes it. So, is he saying, I remember the first time that I heard this, I, I can remember the very day I was in the backyard of the house we were living in at the time. This is when I lived in Rhode Island, and there were some trees in the backyard, and I thought to myself, if I had enough faith, I could move this tree, right? Because I was so gung-ho for the Bible, which, I mean, I still am, but back then I was, I knew nothing, but I had so gung-ho. And I'd, we read this passage in church, and I was like, I'm going to actually move a tree. And, uh, you know, could I really have the faith to do it? Because you always doubt, right? That's what I was thinking to myself. It's like, no, this is stupid. It's impossible. I mean, nobody does that. And then I tried to chase those thoughts out of my mind and have pure faith that I could move a tree. It was a, a waste of a good hour, I would say. But uh, <clears throat> could I go out on, you know, on a clear day here in Oregon? You can see some pretty big mountains. I mean, in Salem, Oregon. Uh, Mount Jefferson is pretty prevalent out uh, east. Is that east? Yes. Um, you know, if you had enough faith, could Mount Jefferson go into the Pacific? That's not the meaning. This, uh, this idiom for moving mountains into the Greeks meant just like we use it. It means to do the impossible. And what God is saying here, what the Lord is saying, is that with faith in the right thing, I will do things in your life that are impossible for you to do and what you think are impossible. I mean, honestly, can people change that to everyone around them says that person will never change. That's impossible. When God gets a hold of them, which means that that person gives themselves over to God, which is an act of faith the size of a mustard seed, God starts to work. God uses many analogies for this, which are marvelous. But one comes to mind is he's the master potter that molds the clay. When the, when the lump of clay says, by, you know what, by faith I'm putting my life in your hands, then God really gets to work and changes them. And that's what Jesus means here. That vice, that addiction, that area of sin, that anger you keep falling into, that self-pity you keep falling for, the fear that you keep having, God is going to take that what looks like a mountain and throw it into the sea. And it will never bother you again. <clears throat> we won't become sinless, but what God is saying here is that I will cure you. That's what God does. He cures us. It's not a remodel. It's a brand new creature. And it's completely a matter of faith. <clears throat> then, the Lord gives an immediate... So, notice, they said increase our faith. He didn't really answer their question, did he? He said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you could tell this tree to go into the sea. Uh, okay. And, but, and then he keeps talking. And notice what he says. Verse 7. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? In other words, you say to your slave, eat before me, and you have no more work to do. That's not how it's done. Verse 8, but, he, but will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you 
may eat and drink. Now, this uh, <clears throat> this um, slave has the job of a slave. And it's his job, after he has worked a long day in the fields, to come in and not throw his, not take, take his shoes off and put his feet up, but to actually continue working for his master and serve him. So he's to prepare the dinner, and then he's to serve the master, and when the master's done and, and satisfied, then and only then can the slave eat and drink. Verse 9, <clears throat> he, meaning the master, does not thank the slave because he did the things that were commanded, does he? So you too. When you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves and have done only that which we have ought to have done, which we ought to have done. So how does this relate? Because in the context, the, the disciples have requested of Christ to increase their faith, and you can't help but think that this parable has something to do with it, and it certainly does. When you have done what is commanded of you, and you've done it well, all right, what's in store for you next? Ah, well, you get to do nothing. The Lord throws a parade for you. Uh, I don't know, you're lifted immediately up to heaven and the angels rejoice and they all pat you on the back. No. When you have done what is commanded of you and you've done it well, don't expect something different than a continued life of service. Service done well earns you what? More service tomorrow. Oh, man. Well, well, what's the point of that? The joy is in the service. The joy is in the work itself. That's what it means. And again, God promises us joy. If you say, well, that, there's no joy in that, your opinion disagrees with God. And you can have that opinion. God lets us have all kinds of wrong opinions. I've had more than I wanted to, to even remember. And I'm sure I've still got some wrong ones in me. But when we have an opinion that's different than God's, we are operating in pride. If I say, hey, this serving Christ for my whole life is not a life of joy, then I have a different opinion than God because God says that it is. And there's only one person on earth who has done it perfectly, and that is the Lord. And the Lord was happy. He was happy to do the Father's will. It's the whole purpose he came, was to do the Father's will. And then he says something at the end of this. So we have service. What's going to increase your faith? A whole lot of time serving the Lord. It's not sexy. It's not jazzy. It's not a quick fix. No, it's not. But it is truly a manifestation of someone who believes. If you love the Lord, you want to follow him anywhere and do everything that he wants you to do. No brainer. You're still not going to get it right all the time. And however, when you do, God is going to do some amazing things with you. The manifestation of your ministry up unto others is going to be amazing. There's going to be some amazing things that happen. And when amazing things happen, 
in our lives. We say, wow, you know, I followed in faith and God did some miraculous stuff. And then if the next line out of your mouth or out of your soul is, I'm awesome, then your peace and your faith have gone away. Because as soon as you start to say, I'm awesome, that doesn't agree with God's opinion of you either. God doesn't tell us that we're awesome. No, God says something else. (laughs) And, And this we have to accept. And it's wonderful to accept this. It takes all the pressure off of you, by the way. In verse 10, so you too, right? When you do all the things that are commanded to you, say, well, bravo, self. And I've heard somebody try to interpret this as saying, well, what the Lord is saying here is that we should do more than what is commanded us. And, I, and I, when I first heard it, I was like, yeah, you know, we're going we're gonna to even do more and then we're going to be worthy slaves. And then later on, I thought about it and I said, well, how could I do more than I'm commanded? A, I will never do all that I'm commanded. How in the world could I do more? B, what are the other commands that I'm supposed to follow? If I've done all that I've been commanded, I need more commands to follow uh, it it fails at all in all angles. No, he's not saying here do more. He's saying do all that you're commanded, and when you do, be careful. Because when a faith accomplishes mighty things, pride is lurking and ready to quench it. So my picture here is of a nice beach with a dark cloud looming in, and that's what pride is. I put a happy little girl on the beach because that's, you know, we can be all happy. We're happy and everything's great. I have her purposely facing the opposite way of the storm because the clouds are moving in, which is our pride, and pride is going to quench our faith. Pride is my opinion. And as soon as I adopt my opinion, my faith is out the window. It's not gone forever. That's what the repentance thing is about. But pride is lurking. And so Jesus says, look, no matter how much you do, no matter how much you do, no matter how much good I do through you, make sure you remember that I'm the worthy one. I am. And so, and there's your, <clears throat> what we just saw. There it is. There is the life that increases faith. Faith increases by endurance, and that increase is guaranteed. As he says here, and I quote on the board, John 14, 23, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Not in them, with them. The preposition here means with. And faith increases by obedience. A lifetime of obedience. And and we'll start to figure out, as anybody who does this will figure out, that there's no get-faith-quick scheme. That like, for instance, if you want to lose weight and get in shape, which is something that I'm trying to do, (laughs) and you can't do it in a week. You can't even do it in a month. You can't do it in three months. 
it takes a while. It means that if you're going to lose weight, say you want to get whatever age you're at, you want to get in shape, you want to get physically healthy. It means an absolute commitment of diligence and obedience to certain things, like diet and exercise. There's no other way to do it. God has made it this way. God has made our bodies, our physical bodies, for movement. We have an entire society where we're all sitting on our butts, which I do far too much. You know, it's part of my job that I have to sit at a computer and, and read. And, but it's true for a lot of people. We're sedentary. Sedentary it means, obviously, you're not moving. If you're going to get in shape, it takes time. You have to. But the same is true of increasing faith. I'd be faithful to God for a week, for a month, and then I'm like, God, you know, where's, where's my spiritual maturity at? Uh, it's a long way off. You know, it's, we must not adopt our own opinion. There's no get faith quick scheme. We have to be patient. We have to keep plugging. Keep plugging with the Scripture. We have to learn more, and we have to obey what we learn. And so, also, what this does is, that's why I put at the end there, this is guaranteed. Therefore, we should have a positive outlook. The positive outlook says, look, I, I don't know how long it's going to take, but it's going to happen. My life is going to completely change. The lack of joy is going to be joy. The fear and anxiety and worry that I often go to is going to be cured. It's going to be gone. What am I going to look like in the future when all of these things God has overcome for me? It's going to be fantastic. And when it becomes fantastic, then pride's going to come knocking. And so we're always at trial. <laughs> but uh, you know, you'll be ready for it. We should, and a positive outlook is God's word, hope. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you for our Lord. Thank you that he set the way, and before he did what he did, he taught us about what he did. This humble servant, that's what he was. And he has taught us what he himself has lived. And he made us like him. So, through you, Father, by sending him and his sacrifice and the Holy Spirit within us to open up our hearts and give us the energy to do it, you have led us. We, we just pray that our eyes are open to the reality of it, each one of us, that we may gain that hope and also increase our faith. We ask in Christ's name, amen.